This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, kitchen heroes, humble protagonists who get things done in speculative fiction. Okay, so we've done a lot on chosen ones and power pack protagonists, as well as snarky sidekicks and various types of love interest. But there's another type of character who makes a story go. Yeah, we're talking about the kitchen hero, the ordinary humble protagonist who is outgunned by pretty much everyone around them, especially if this is an ensemble piece of science fiction or fantasy. Um, and yet, by dint of simple, honest skills, they are undervalued and, or being unassuming, kind and approachable person, they somehow carry the day. Yeah. These are the characters who remember things like how to acquire food, or that the bread needs to be baked so the entire party can eat. They are the ones who notice when someone else is flagging and needs medicine, help or emotional support. They will innocently mediate between spikier members of the group. Yeah, they are often the experts in the soft skills, which particularly in fantasy and and, uh, sort of speculative fiction type stories uh, tend to be kind of underlooked despite being incredibly valuable um, and important to the entire running of the story. Yeah. So we love these characters, whether they are protagonists or or rather, I love these characters and I'm assuming Madeline loves them. Oh no, I totally do. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Um, This is whether they are the protagonists themselves or supporting characters. And basically this episode is about celebrating them and how best to write your own. Yes. Okay, so some of you might be listening and going, what's so great about a kitchen hero? Well, let us tell you. (laughs) So a lot of people will find them more relatable. And I think there's several reasons behind that. Um, Mostly because I think that a lot of people who love kind of reading, particularly speculative fiction stuff, tend to also have a kind of a strong sense for those soft skills. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you're reading something and yes, you want to imagine yourself in the role of the protagonist who's leading the rebellion or whatever. And sometimes you're kind of like, actually, I want to be the person who is back at the campfire baking the bread or whatever. Um, Or I really love this character because while everyone else is being ridiculous and dramatic, they're just getting shit done quietly without any real applause or anything. Yeah. They can also feel a little bit more relatable in terms of experience and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, because not everyone swings a sword around periodically. Yeah. I mean, we both do. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's lots of people who are like, actually, you know what, I spend a lot more time baking bread than I do uh, swinging a sword around. Again, I am definitely... I can't bake bread to save my life. I can't bake at all, but I can swing a sword around. (laughs) But you know what I mean, is that they're doing things that are much 
more connected to what we do in the day to day so while there is the fantasy of someone doing something incredible amazing heart stopping etc um, there is also this relatability of someone doing things that we do which we might actually even enjoy or which actually really do keep everything running that aren't always as appreciated yeah definitely honestly if you're a detail-oriented reader then knowing that someone is in charge of the pack horses the food and the medicine is actually very satisfying um i have to say this is something that does catch me sometimes when i'm reading particularly epic fantasy mm. whereby they're kind of like oh we marched for 10 days etc and i'm like yeah but on what you know why are there no food stops why are yeah. your horses so well rested when you get there? What's going on? So um, knowing that there's somebody who's kind of like, yeah, I'm checking the horses' hooves and grooming them at night, etc., actually makes me be able to relax into a story more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they also provide a softer, kind of cosier moment in the story, you know, remember our episode on feel-good moments even in the darkest of fiction well a kitchen hero is perfect for delivering those moments yeah definitely um you can pull off an amazingly satisfying ending with a kitchen hero as well um someone unassuming who triumphs despite being completely out of their depth honestly uh, okay <laughs> one of my readers once said to me that they I think that one of the issues they had with I Rule the Night is that this being that was the main enemy, the yeah, main antagonist in I Rule the Night, was in fact um, so was it incredibly overpowered, way more way more powered up than than M was, mm. and they felt it was unrealistic um, that something like that should be able to be beaten by a simple, essentially what comes down to a simple game of words. Um, and learning to to bend the rules to your advantage yeah i personally really disagree with that i i don't you know for one thing if you have something that's this huge unbeatable god type thing often they've swallowed their own rhetoric so they've they've swallowed the, their own press and they they believe themselves to be greater than they are um in addition um there's always something that the smallest meekest and humblest of of people can do and sometimes that is simply just saying no. And I just find it... Oh, I'm not saying this reader is wrong, because everyone has to read in the way that they think um, yeah. of something. But I, I was kind of like, that's a really weird perspective. That's a really weird literal perspective. That means you've literally taken everything instead of re reading through it and, and weighing it up and thinking, how much do I believe X, Y and Z? you've gone okay that's literally the truth yeah. which i find a little bit disheartening not in terms of me as a writer but in terms of just someone being a reader and it's like you're missing layers there um not of my fiction necessarily but of anybody's really and i just find that really strange that you're going through life thinking that someone who is smaller and less powerful can't make a difference so i find that quite sad obviously i don't agree with it um so I, I really like the unassuming hero who pulls off a, a, a magical triumph somehow um, just through being overlooked, I guess. Yeah. Uh, loopholes and things like that. And, and 
it's something that we do see a lot of in fiction um particularly proper underdog fiction where there's a lot of oh well they're the underdog um but actually they'll then have someone who's incredibly powerful but i really like it when they're the underdog and they have someone who is smart kind or who does things that are kind of so trivial that they are overlooked and but they're not actually trivial they're very important what is it al capone or i can't remember who it was who got basically they finally managed to arrest him because of taxes or something like that yeah Yeah, exactly um and it's like so many other things are happening there which seems so much bigger and more important and yet it was that small detail which was the thing that finally got them yeah it's the lateral thinking and the well i can't go toe to toe with you I, i can't do it i won't survive and i won't do anything except make a greasy smear on the ground so what if i did this instead and, yeah. you know, it's not even being super cunning. Sometimes it's just being very true of, of heart and true of yourself, true within yourself, uh, which is a really underrated thing, I find, in particularly anything that's very action-packed. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, as a final thought, humble heroes aren't usually chosen once, um, although they can be. Um, and you find this a lot in classic boy meets sword stories or coming of age fantasy. Yeah. I mean, if a humble hero is a chosen one, they're almost always reluctant, underpowered, out of their depth, and in the end, they don't win via special powers, but by inborn qualities of goodness, empathy, and loyalty. Yeah. I was listening to um, a a cosy fantasy um, called The Kitchen Witch. Yeah. which is and i've just forgotten again who the author is my memory is still as terrible as always that's it so um it's by uh delam hatch um and in the story basically a a young witch um he comes to a castle to basically take over as the head chef um and as a witch he's because he's a kitchen witch he's kind of looked down on upon what he can do is he can basically do stuff which is around the around the house um and because of that no one really sort of looks at him or considers him to be any good at all uh until they kind of realize that his power is approximate to the household so his power does grow if his household grows but the household isn't just right this is a room that i'm in it's also about basically creating a place which feels safe um and where and making food that makes people happy and stuff like that and how that is actually really starting to turn the tide or could potentially turn the tide um despite the fact that he clearly doesn't think of himself as particularly powerful and has even been dismissed by a lot of other people to the point that there are people now who are saying you're actually more powerful than you think and he's like no (laughs) (laughs) i just i just like making good food (laughs) yeah definitely i keep meaning to read that one and i haven't got to it yet i mean the list of books that i keep meaning to read is massive obviously but that has been on the list for a little while um okay so how do you write a humble humble hero whilst keeping them humble 
Yeah, this is a potentially it's a tricky one because sometimes you can write a hero who starts off from very humble beginnings and then they become a chosen one, which is fine, and you can still have a chosen one who is still essentially a humble person. Um, yeah. But it becomes increasingly difficult for them to still be, um, s- still be a humble character as they get more and more powered up or they acquire more skills. And I think there is a difference between a humble hero and someone who is genuinely an underdog. We're talking about someone who's basically ordinary, as in you wouldn't necessarily look twice at them in the street kind of thing. And um, they're not, like, really useless, although they might be at certain things, but they're not really, like, great at anything either. They're not They're not the stuff of which ballads are normally made. No one sings about the kitchen heroes. So yeah. I think getting that balance right can be quite a delicate thing. So we've got yeah. a series of we've got like seven seven potential things you can do, and we've got a series of like talking points for each bit. So we're just going to go through and just discuss yeah. them. Okay. So number one is use underrated supporting skills. So, for examples of that, uh, cleaning a hero who cleans or organizes because someone has to do it may discover an important clue or artifact. Yeah, I don't think this is one that can be stressed enough, weirdly, with the cleaning. Because, okay, again, my, my little brain is always kind of like, who's doing the tidying up? Because I'm a bit of a neat freak. Um, <laughs> but genuinely, it's a case of, oh, we can't find it. Well, have you tried tidying up? Um, <laughs> that always pops up as well. And it's it's kind of an important thing to do. Weirdly, there is a Having a tidy house, or and I'm not talking about Marie Kondo levels of being tidy, where you throw out all your books and you make sure your socks are perfectly mated into like small spirals, etc. Um, I am just talking about just generally being tidy and keeping your house clean and stuff tends to lead to a more organised mind. There is a correlation between the two things, um, so getting it, it's like habits of mind. In, in the same way that trying to be organised with sort of dates and appointments and things tends to lead you to be just generally more organised in how you think. So I really do think someone who's kind of like, oh, well, everything's a bit of a mess, I'll just tidy up a bit, is very likely to be the person who stumbles across this important clue um, simply because they're not necessarily looking for it at the time, but they're noticing things. Yeah. A, a good example of this is Heart's Blood by uh, Juliet um, Meridia. Yeah. Just forgotten what the main character is called. Um, Ka- uh, Caitlin? Caitlin, yes. Kathleen. Kathleen, yeah. yeah. So um, her whole job is that she's a scribe. She's been hired to uh, organise the library, which is a total <laughs> mess. And it's because of her just day by day going through that and the way that she's been organising things that she finds the vital clues that basically save the day. Yeah. You know, there are people out fighting battles, she's reading books and she's writing and she still is the one who basically, without her, everything would have fallen apart. Yeah, big time. Yeah. That's a really good example. Okay, uh, similarly, repairing. So a character who likes to tinker or repair or craft... Um, will not necessarily discount an item that the rest of the team will throw away. And it could turn out to be something that's essential. And it, it's like, I kind of like the idea of there being a member of the team who's like, nobody really rates them, but nobody really thinks they're bad either. And it's yeah. just like, oh, well, we need this pair of boots fixed. 
or maybe these these boots need chucking out this person's like well there's a lot of good leather there it doesn't matter that the soul's coming away maybe i can have a do a little bit of repair work on that and it'd be a decent pair of spare boots maybe that saves somebody from losing a foot to frostbite later on you know yeah that's absolutely or maybe they yeah. turn out to be seven ten seven league boots and you can walk way faster in them yeah <laughs> Um, I particularly like it when there's an element of magic which is kind of sort of thrown in where it's like, well, these these are small little things. They don't actually add to much. But by using someone who's just said, okay, well, I'm just collecting these small little things and I'm repairing and working them together, they've actually created a greater working um, with care, dedication and stuff like that. And they've not even intended to do it, you know? Yeah, there is a great example of that. There is a mage in uh, Becca Cooper series by Tamora Pierce um, mm-hmm. in the book Mastiff. And he he hasn't... I mean, basically, when people become mages, they choose their mage name and that's how they're known. He chooses mm-hmm. to be called Farmer. And everyone's right. like, that's a really stupid name. <laughs> Why did you pick farmer? And he's like, because I, I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the fact that everything we need comes basically from the ground. And, you know, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that I'm, just because I'm now a mage and I'm a qualified mage, etc., that I have come from very humble beginnings. And he's not being, he's not putting it on. He's just genuinely, I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking I'm much better than I am. And yeah. he isn't really a great mage. He doesn't have this huge store of power himself. But what he's very good at, because he was kind of brought up by his grandmother and he had six sisters, he learned how to crochet and knit and embroider and sew. So he makes a lot of his own clothes. And what he likes to do is embroider. And as he's walking, he'll, he'll literally embroider while he's sat on horseback. Um, and where people have done everyday bits of magic like ice boxes to keep food fresh and when spells sort of deteriorate over time a little bit of leftover magic's there and it's just there and it's not doing anything and he takes it and he weaves it into his embroidery until he ends up with this fuck off great big long um, metres and metres long ribbon of embroidery of all this stored leftover magic that he Mm. can access and he's not deliberately trying to do a great working it's just kind of like well, I'll save it for a rainy day. And it is it is that I'll save it for a rainy day attitude. And why should we waste things? We could be using them. This is leftover power. And everyone's going, oh, well, it's scraps. It's rag ends. Nobody will use it. It's no, it's no good for anything. Just leave it where it is. Yeah. So he's just going around and gradually collecting it up. It's his embroidery, which is a really thankless task, just collecting these scraps of magic. Um, ends up saving the day with this huge amount of power. That is really cool. I love that. Yeah. Uh, the next one is caregiving. So this character notices with someone else's suffering and does something about it, allowing that character to recover physically or emotionally in time for the final battle. Yeah, this is something that can't be underestimated, really. Yeah. I mean, if you've got your key player and they're doing the hidden, the hidden stab wound thing or the hidden emotional stab wound thing... Yeah. Where it's going to really affect their performance. Somebody who can do something about that is really important. Yeah. Someone who can save the hero is also a hero. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, uh, uh, our final one in this little section is the, the prior achievement turning point. What this comes down to, basically, is a character has a vague interest in something and thinks, oh, that skill might be useful. 
something for a rainy day kind of thing and there's no real benefit to them acquiring the skill at that point but they spend a lot a long time sort of getting really good at this thing maybe spinning or something like that Mm. and it has no obvious benefit to the entire mission it has no obvious benefit to them as a person but they're kind of like no i like it it's soothing etc and then it later turns out to be the skill that saves the day yeah i love that Like, no, it's just a hobby of mine. Okay, but now this hobby of yours is going <laughs> to turn the tide. <laughs> it's like, hang on a minute, how much rope have you spun? Oh, well, about seven metres of it or so. <laughs> Do you think you could spin this elven plant into rope? Yeah, probably. I've got quite good at Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I just love this idea. Of, so what do you do during your spare time? Oh, I spin rope. <laughs> I find it very soothing. (laughs) So it's great. Okay, so our second section is the fending off of sneaky attacks. So in most fantasy and science fiction, not all attacks come head on with people declaring war first and, you know, obeying the rules of engagement. Yeah. Um, So this character will notice things and consider things like cooking and gathering important ingredients, elements, etc. So when en- when an enemy attempts to poison the party by disguising a poisonous plant as parsley, for example, the humble hero knows and averts disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's a really, I think that's a really good one, and that's a typical kind of like haha, we'll put this in the cauldron and it's like, I recognise that smell. <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. Don't absolutely. eat it kind of thing. Um, it, it it makes me think of um, I, oh god what is wrong with my memory um, it, it's the same series as the as Glass Onion um, oh, uh, with Benoit out. Blanc Knives Out Knives Out yeah so in Knives Out there is this whole murder attempt uh, by basically just switching out medication yeah and it, it technically doesn't work because the humble hero knows the difference between the two medications instinctually. Yeah, by weight. She's yeah. just like, that's not the right one, I'll go for the other one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was really clever. Um, so yeah, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, I also love that one when it's paired with the whole... You have kind of like the tank of the group who's been going, oh, that thing, the weak thing that's been following us around. And they're kind of just... They don't even really hate the person. They're just kind of like, they're not really useful for anything. But the humble hero notices the smell of um, wolfsbane or whatever it is that's in the stew and knocks it from their hand and it later turns out they've saved this person's life and then the tank just becomes devoted to saving them in yeah. return. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you are everything and I love you. <laughs> yeah. I, also, I also love the opposite where it's like, you've got a group and the tank particularly likes the humble hero because they always cook delicious food yeah and and so they're like no we've got to protect them and you think oh this tank is just interested in you know this is how how silly that they'll go through such lengths and put such importance on someone who's just doing the food and then actually you turn around and you're like oh hold on a second no, they were absolutely right to value this person and they're really the only one who has put value on this person and their skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, okay, distraction tactics. So let's say a disguised enemy is, is trying to sneak into the camp to cause mayhem. Um, and I don't know, they're posing as a peddler or a carpenter or something. Um, stuff that wouldn't normally be valued by the, the group as a whole. But because the mm. humble hero has either been acquiring that skill or has in fact spent a lot of time with genuine artisans and craftspeople, it's kind of like, mm, okay, I'm not sure about this person, so I'm just going to test them by asking this question about dovetailing joints. And the complete <laughs> incorrect answer sort of gives the enemy away, so... Yeah, absolutely. I love that one. Um, but it's also, you tend to get that very frustrating thing where the humble hero is saying, we cannot trust them and everyone else doesn't believe them. Yeah. And so they've kind of actually got to go through the extra hoops to prove it yeah although later on they're kind of like in a decent story later on it's kind of like no 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 if they said that was so then that was so yeah absolutely okay uh next is betrayal by allies so perhaps the humble hero has had trouble sleeping rough they're not a seasoned warrior after all uh but that means they wake up when an ally turns on the party and tries to kill them in their sleep yeah, so obviously these are examples and you can change them to anything you want. But that yeah. whole thing where, they're, again, once again, they're a bit dismissive of this person because they cannot just do the SAS thing of making themselves switch off. Um, yeah. As an aside, the SAS process of this is what you do to make yourself go to sleep, I've been trying that over the last six months and it does work 90% of the time. <laughs> Just, just an FYI, it's kind of like, and, and I am a notorious person who has a sleep disorder as part of the other medical condition. Um, yeah. But it work, fucking works. <laughs> it genuinely does. Mm, good to know. <laughs> but obviously this particular protagonist would not necessarily have that kind of training or experience or whatever. Um, so they're kind of like, oh God, the ground is so hard. I wish I was in my soft bed. What the fuck is that noise? <laughs> yeah. Or that they haven't actually gone to bed yet because all of there still needs to be all the cleaning up to do. Yeah, Everyone's eating making... their meal, but it's like, well, okay, but we do actually have to clean up after the meal. It doesn't yeah. just, the food doesn't just miraculously go away. And if we leave it, we'll attract bears and stuff. <laughs> exactly. I'm setting the dough to rise for bread for tomorrow morning. Yeah. Because bread doesn't just appear out of nowhere and you can't just cook that much of it in advance. It goes off real quick, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, and, a, and a extra humility points for this one. The hero can fend off attacks using common sense. I think this is one of the most underrated qualities, both in real life and in fantasy. <laughs> It's yeah. fucking common sense. And it's a case of when someone says something and it seems too good to be true, chances are that it is. Or let's not do that thing because a little bit of forward thinking shows that the most likely outcome is terrible injury. And then when that happens, this will happen. And when that happens, that will happen. Um, yeah. And just having a bit of forethought. I've heard people say that common sense doesn't exist, which seems to be a really popular opinion. And all I can say is it absolutely does exist. And if you don't naturally have a lot of it, you can cultivate it. It's not just a luck of the draw thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the problems with people saying common sense doesn't exist is that there's this idea that uh, common sense is actually also knowledge of social graces and that's not always the case 
No, not at all. It, common sense is kind of like, if I walk under this ladder, will the man who's balancing up there precariously with a tin of paint accidentally drop it on my head? Maybe I'll walk around the ladder. Yeah. That's common uh, sense. Or maybe I won't pick up this tray that's recently been in the oven with a bare hand because it might still be hot. That's common sense. Yeah. And I also get, you know, sometimes if you're neurodivergent and things like that, you can actually miss those kinds of things. But again, it's about cultivating it. Um, it's something that you can develop for, you know, for your own for your own good so that yeah, you don't absolutely. hurt yourself or others. <laughs> I guess the big thing is that just because you may not necessarily have access to something, don't assume that everybody else in the world also doesn't have access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That's an incredibly arrogant viewpoint. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to section three, being trustworthy and approachable. Um, that almost sounds like, oh, your humble hero is a goody two-shoes, but it's not. They're generally people who are interested in other people who don't immediately discount, you know, the woes and joys of other ordinary people, um, which sometimes you get your big heavy hitter heroes, your star football players, if you like, actually do, and uh, they miss things because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also see examples of this where uh, the humble hero is the one who can actually get through to someone who is going to be who is going to make the difference. Um, you see that in there was the old BBC um, Robin Hood series, where obviously Robin was Robin the hero, uh, but he had Much, who was his servant. And much was kind of sort of looked down upon in a lot of ways, you know, um, and sort of sometimes seen as being a bit selfish or a bit simple minded, etc. Um, but you also saw the great efforts that he had gone through to basically take care of his, you know, his master, as it were, um, while they were away during the Crusades and stuff like that. Um, and that had also meant that there is one moment where they have, they meet someone who's kind of actually been sort of brainwashed um, and much as the one who can actually get through to him. And in the end, this character saves everybody, not because of what anybody else did, but because much was the one who showed him kindness and understanding um, and was able to connect with him because he was quiet and gentle and had soft skills and things like that yeah it is the soft skills thing they're more relatable to ordinary people yeah so people are more likely to speak to them um i, I also kind of like the you know the honest way of speaking and it's like you know how some of your characters they've got the gift of the gab or the silver tongue or they have very cultivated court manners um, yeah but sometimes that what happens is you'll have some you, you know you'll they'll visit the team will visit a, a court and they'll get an audience with the king and the king is fed up of flattery and sycophants and um, yeah. this artful way of speaking and the fact that the humble hero blurts out exactly what's going on and then says you know i'm i don't really know very much about these great deeds etc but just speaks very honestly from the heart tends to sort of charm or win over these people yeah absolutely i, I love that too <laughs> Um, obviously the appearing approachable thing as in 
the, the child who happens to know an essential piece of information is probably not going to go up to the big scary scarred warrior with the sword but they yeah, might unle- unless they're Cuthbert yeah uh, no. <laughs> Cuthbert is a humble hero in my opinion yeah. <laughs> but to be fair the thing he's most interested in initially is the horse <laughs> um <laughs> Um, but, you know, obviously this the child in this situation might happily approach the humble hero. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, so... so... In this way, a humble hero can become the team's only way to communicate with someone who has the important information. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um... Right, so the next one is providing essential information, um, which I think does actually sort of, it, it ties in. So the first one is the friends in humble places. I particularly love it when the humble hero goes, I know a guy. Yes. You know. <laughs> yeah, and it's something really improbable as well. And it's like every, I, I love it when it's kind of like, hang on a minute, you 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 know the witch of the, the forbidden swamp kind of thing. It's like, oh no, she's lovely. She I, she makes jam uh, yeah. or something like that. And uh, all the others are kind of like, no, 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 we're avoiding this person. It's like, no, 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 if you just approach her like she's a normal person. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is that you start to see kind of the humble hero in his various forms here, because you also get an element of this in sort of more kind of gritty crime kind of stories, where you'll have someone who goes, yeah, I know someone who can get you to someone who can get you to, you know, stuff like that. And they tend to be, you know, they tend to be that sleazy character who you don't sort of think of as being able to provide much. But actually, the reason people keep them around is because they are actually they do have the with those softer skills in some respects yeah um there's also the nerdy knowledge factor so someone yeah. who's lived a sheltered sequestered life where they've read a lot of books and just happens to have some insight on that and everyone's talking about how you storm the fortress and they're like well why don't we use the movement that um king bezar of blah 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 used for when he met the armies of everyone's like what are you talking about and uh, you know they sketch out a plan in the dust and it's like actually this could work so you, you have actual warriors who know how battles go down and someone who's like yeah i've read this strategy <laughs> yeah or it's also the one where they're like okay well we've got the magical artifact and stuff like that but none of us can actually speak latin and someone goes over and goes ha, i remember seeing that poem you know what are you talking about? This is very clearly a, you know, this is one of the odes written by Nero or something like that. Yeah. We studied it. odes written by Nero. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, where they happen to have a little bit, or they happen to sort of look over and make a sort of an offhand comment about something, used to being ignored, and it is the turning point. Um, and you see a lot of this also where you've got great detectives and you've got their sort of their regular psychics who happen to just be interested in you know the less esoteric stuff but are are perhaps actually just kind of more grounded in other little things that the hero might not have actually considered important enough to learn or remember yeah um and also folksy knowledge so someone who you know they don't seem to be very much good in the field but they have a vast body of folklore under their belt yeah basically we're describing steve 
Um, in that scenario, yeah. yeah. I mean, he definitely <laughs> becomes more competent as the series goes on, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but he's definitely the nerdy knowledge and folksy knowledge guy. <laughs> okay, uh, next one is swaying conflicted team members, and I love this one. Um, so they will have, you know, they'll be able to organise tactical trade-offs and have fresh ways of looking at a situation. Yeah. I think that's the thing. You have the once again the the more powered up heroes have a have quite often a very direct or sometimes a very sneaky way of going about things, and they don't necessarily think about well, how about we compromise? <laughs> it's like I don't like compromising. It's like yes, but in this scenario, compromising might actually get us what we want. Yeah, and it 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 can actually be about yeah fi- finding that middle ground, but also. So often it also involves making the hero think it was their idea as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, The whole removal of emotional blocks. So let's say the hero has got a... In fact, let's take Amy as an example. Yeah. (laughs) Amy in in, uh, The Sea in Darkness, which is book six of Harker and Blackthorn. I'm using my own work because I know it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Um, But she is fighting this attraction she's got for Steve because she believes it is entirely down to the winter solstice ritual that they had to perform in order to kill off yeah. the wild hunt basically and doesn't and thinks he doesn't want it <laughs> and she's convinced he doesn't feel that way and she's actually it, the worst part of it is she's convinced she doesn't really truly feel that way and she doesn't want to jeopardize their friendship and then Megan sort of points out that, well, how long does a year king technically have precedence? So how long is this effect going to last? And Amy's like, oh, God, about six months. And Megan's like, well, so in, what, another four months' time, you'll know it'll be gone or it won't be gone and, and you'll know. And Amy's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then she knows. <laughs> then she knows. Yeah. Um, obviously there are more complications but Megan's really good in that series at looking at other people seeing what their emotional block is and helping them to get past it without them even realising that's what she's doing yeah absolutely Um, you know there's a lot to be said about the character who can give that do the emotional caregiving and also just knock some sense into into one of the other heroes yeah yeah Finally, they can also act as a mediator. Um, this obviously particularly happens in sort of ensemble pieces where you might have two very bullheaded heroes and you really need someone who's going to be able to pull them together um, and actually work out the differences between them so that they will work together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly when you've got... Again, it's one of those... It's the whole star football of thing again. Yeah. <laughs> so a team, a team going towards in an epic fantasy or whatever, you've got your, your great warriors and they just don't see eye to eye because everyone's trying to be front man of the band. Yeah. And uh, the humble hero is very good at making them both see that the other has value. Yeah, being the glue. Yes. Two pieces of wood are all very good, but you need glue to keep them together. Or a nail, at least. <laughs> yes. Okay, alright. Next is... Ca- 
carrying the MacGuffin. Yeah, the obvious example here is Frodo and the Ring, or actually Sam and the Ring. <laughs> Sam and Frodo and the Ring. Yeah. Um, and, okay, the, the reason you might give the MacGuffin to the humble hero is that they're, they're humble, they're overlooked. Um, it bugs me, I think, when... It bugs me, I think. No, it definitely bugs me. When people say, oh, Lord of the Rings could have ended in five minutes if they'd just flown into Mordor on eagles. And the whole point is that Sauron can see pretty much everything. Yeah. That doesn't mean you'll draw his attention. Although you will draw his attention if you fly in on a bloody big bird carrying the ring he wants. Yeah. So that would have been doomed to failure from the start. The same way that if you gave it to Legolas or you gave it to Aragorn or someone who could, who was a great person who could command greatness and great armies, etc. Um, they're noticeable. But the Hobbit's not noticeable. They're too small for Sauron to even think they're a threat. And the whole yeah. point is to get the ring as close to to Mount Doom as they possibly can. So giving it to Frodo in a way is a stroke of genius. Having Sam go with Frodo is probably the cleverest thing Gandalf does um, because Sam is even more of a humble hero than Frodo is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's... I think, you know, it ties in, which is that the ring has less of an effect on hobbits than it would on a man... Or, or an elf or anything like that. It's not that it has less effect on hobbits, it has less effect on Frodo because he personally does not have any great desire for power. And you could say the same about Sam, really. It's about Sam, yeah. Um, and I think, it, it again, it's that idea that because of that, it has, it has less effect. And also, he, that is why they're less noticeable because Sauron doesn't think of anyone who would ha who has no desire for power as being important enough to really notice or a threat or yeah. a threat yeah yeah so in that respect i mean skipping ahead to sort of point three the hero is uniquely qualified to hold the MacGuffin. in this instance the ring um and frodo not really wanting to have anything to do with this but being kind of forced into it and or feeling duty bound to do it i think is a better way of saying it and yeah. being resilient to the influence of the ring, the malign influence it yeah. affects. It's also the idea that the hero stays where it is safe, doesn't take unnecessary risks. That really is the hobbits. I mean, they, what they're interested in is eating food and having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> even Frodo, who's more of a scholarly one, even Bilbo, who is definitely more of a scholarly hobbit um, than most hobbits are. And it's... It, and yet, as Gandalf says, there's greatness in them. When they're pushed to it, there is greatness in them because they will stand and fight. Yeah, they have. They do have a sense of what is right and wrong. But and it's... and also a desire, I think, to make things good for others as well. Yeah, but in terms of charging into battle, that's not something they'd necessarily do unless a friend's life was on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Um. For me, it's one of the moments of, of Lord of the Rings that always sticks out is when um, Pippin goes looking for Merry. Yeah. In the battle and just goes to... And so and so everyone else has kind of retreated um, and he's picking among the dead because he wants to go and find Merry. Yeah. Um, and that always hits me really hard because it's, it's dangerous, actually, for him to be doing that. Yeah. It's dangerous, it's harrowing... But by God, he's not going until he's found Mary. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
Okay, our final section um, on, you know, how you can write your own humble hero and keep them humble. Give them a lowly place in the team or make them an assistant. So you can do this and yet still have this be something that puts them at risk. So, for example, if they're running errands for one of the greater <laughs> the greater heroes, um, mm-hmm. it can put, the, can, can put the, the humble hero in the line of fire because enemies are like, hmm, that's a way in to get this person who's the real threat. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So they, they try and intercept them. Yeah. Um, there's also the reception duties. So they're assisting a more important character by organising their appointments. Yeah. Everyone's... Which sounds, it sounds really boring, but actually it, it really isn't. <laughs> it sounds really boring, but once again, you're back on that thing where they notice things. They keep things organised in their heads. I really liked the way I'm talking about Tamora Pierce again, and I'm at some point I'm going to get Madeline to read these four books because she'll just love them, and that would <laughs> be it. You'll be really reading them all the time once you have. Um, but it's in a book called The Healing in the Vine by Tamora Pierce. It's part of the Magic Circle series, and um, it's Briar's book, so it's from Briar's perspective. And there's a terrible plague, and the whole thing focuses on the great mages sort of getting together and trying to work out what the root of the plague is so they can come up with a cure that will save the most number of people. There is so little magic actually in the the disease itself that they don't notice it. But Briar's learned how to see magic and he sees this tiny, tiny silver flash in, in the vats that contain the, the raw disease, if you like, the, the actual almost as if you were trying to make an inoculation, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he's looking at it and he's thinking, I'm not sure that is there. It's so faint, I'm not sure I can see it. But he knows his foster sister, Triss, can see magic even better than he can. So he mm. f- comes up with a way of getting her hired as, you know, the person in charge of this this um, study's assistant. And, you know, considering he, the, the guy who's running it, Dedicate Crane, is just impossible to work for and keeps firing people left, right and centre the minute they make a single mistake. Yeah. He gets Triss in there and Triss stands up to this guy, even though she's only about 11 years old, and she turns out to be his best assistant. And finally, Briar gets her to see what's in the vats without telling her what he thinks he's seen. And she takes one look at it and goes, there's magic in this. This is a magic-concocted disease. Why aren't we treating it as if it's a magic-concocted disease? We're we're studying it all wrong. And she marches off and (laughs) tackles Crane about it. And it's that whole thing with being an assistant and organising things for somebody who is technically more important because they can't fight the disease without it, with this person. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, And just changing the level of the investigation. And they start to finally make progress after that. Yeah, it is about being in the position where you see the underbelly of the operation. And because of that, you see the cogs. Yeah, and seeing this isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Finally, it's repetitive tasks. You know, these are still important, even if they're boring. And maybe they reveal something, which is, I've been doing this every single day of my life. And... That's why I know that something is different, even though someone has, you know, uh, from what it should be. Yeah, I'm a scribe copying out books of magic and this one page, I know I've copied it nine times now and yet it vanishes every single time I copy it. Something is wrong with that page. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Or even just... <laughs> I had an example and it's just gone out of my mind. But yeah, just, just having that moment where you suddenly go, I've been... Um, you know, I've been hand rearing uh, chickens all my life. I have never met a chicken which is like this. And everyone else saying, you're being silly. Um, you know, we've done all the tests, the usual tests, and that everything says that it's as it should be. And then saying, no, there is something wrong with this. And I know it from experience because I've been doing this exact thing for the last 20 years. Yeah, definitely. So those are all some really good ways where you can write a humble hero and keep them humble without sort of accidentally overpowering them and taking them out of the bracket they're in. Um, also yeah. in how they interact with other characters and how you can keep that sense of trueness, honesty and, and warmth, which the character normally has. Yeah, which is vitally important. Okay, so let's look at a few examples of some kitchen heroes that we love yeah i'll field the first one um and i'll also mention basically wart from um oh god what's the name of the author it's gone out of my head but basically basically it's the sword in the stone the uh, the, the book originally um and you know garion is very much like wart in a lot of ways kitchen boy reared kept very dirty so he doesn't realize he's got destiny kept ignorant and unable to read etc um, yeah the belgariads a five book fantasy series with a big side of um satire shall we say there's a lot yeah. of tongue-in-cheek humor there um and it is a classic boy meets sword story boy boy is handed a destiny and yet garion is not the person you would expect to be the person who's carrying this destiny um, you've also got Dernick, who's the smith on the farm where Garion is working as a kitchen boy, um, mm -hmm. who is hopelessly in love with Garion's aunt, who turns out to be the sorceress Polgara. So she's, <laughs> like, she's well out of Dernick's league kind of thing, or so everyone thinks. Um, and Dernick is, he goes along and he ends up being absolutely instrumental in the battle against the... Uh, in the final battle against the evil in the, in the north kind of thing. And they're just, they're, they are great characters. They're a lot of fun. Um, a lot of people have mixed feelings about the Belgariad for various different reasons and, and about David Eddings himself. But I will say that I, while they're quite simplistic for epic fantasy, they are very accessible and they are good examples of this type of character. Yeah. Okay, uh, next is Hala from Sword Heart, but... To be honest, most of T. Kingfisher's main characters are kitchen heroes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, while Hala has her flashes of, of brilliance, ultimately she's just kind of like, I'm just trying to do the best I can. I'm not exceptional at anything. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just going just to gonna keep going and keep going until I finally snap and shout at the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> I, I'm a kitchen maid, and there's actually nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, I mean, Haller's actually inherited that estate, but yeah, but she's just desperately trying to escape the whole thing. Yes, um, I just I I think she's brilliant as a character, very relatable for so many reasons. <laughs> I mean, having read a lot of T. Kingfisher's horror recently, um, I think pretty much 
most of her, certainly most of her female character, main characters, mm. are actually kitchen heroes. And it's like, I've just turned up with my dog to clear out the farm, clear out the house where my evil grandmother used to live. Oh, shit, there's a world beneath this one. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I've got to get out of it kind of yeah. thing. Or I've been hired to do the gardening. Um, yes. And I've got to deal with these evil roses. <laughs> And why is the house covered in vultures? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, weirdly, Harry Potter himself is kind of a kitchen hero because, well, yes, he does get called the chosen one. It's not something he necessarily ever really thinks of himself. And being the chosen one doesn't confer special powers on you. No. Um, it just means he's the subject of a prophecy. And what what's interesting and what sort of cements him ultimately being a kitchen hero is the fact that his his final decisions are made out of kindness and choosing humanity over power. Yeah. Which is ultimately the sort of thing that Voldemort cannot do. He's made himself unable to do, um, which leads to his, his final defeat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and has a lot of interesting consequences in, in other respects as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, next... Uh, Obviously, we've mentioned Frodo and Sam. We should um, mention Bilbo, really, because Bilbo... We, we, just, sh we should mention Bilbo as well. He just gets bounced along on that adventure with the dwarves to a dragon, and yeah. Bilbo is the only one, when they get caught by, by trolls, who thinks of suing for time rather than trying to battle the trolls directly until the trolls get caught in sunlight and turned into stone. Yeah. <laughs> and by Jove, does it work? <laughs> Um, yeah, I do like that a lot of Bilbo's um, solutions to things is, let's just talk. <laughs> and it's not necessarily, I want to talk to you, it's, if I talk to you for long enough, something will happen which changes. It's like, you can't eat me and talk to me at the same time. He talks to Smaug, for God's sake, and he is basically just hired as a burglar because he's, again, a hobbit and therefore unnoticeable by most other species. Yeah. I mean, Smaug, literally, Smaug doesn't eat him straight away because Smaug is like, ah, honestly, this is, I'm so underwhelmed by you as a creature that I, I don't, I'm not even that. You are not worth the trouble to pick you are out not my worth teeth. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's honestly amusing to just, just talk to you for a few minutes um, before I, before I just burn you alive. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Um, I also obviously kind of want to say Steve and Meg from Harker and Blackthorn. Meg is a character who really, really, really grew on me. Um, in the same way that Steve did, because um, obviously I adore Steve now, um, but I was a bit sort of eh, about him um, in the original series because, again, he is that kitchen hero, but he was very much in the background. So he did some cool stuff and I was like, cool. But for the most part, I just didn't connect with him. And now we've got to see more of him. I really was connecting with him. But um, Meg kind of really came out of left field because I know she came out of left field for you as a writer as well. well to be honest, I kind of didn't think Eddie and Meg were going to stay the course with the entire series. And now it's like, no, 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 they're not being benched. They're refusing to be benched. And yeah. it's like, well, Meg was just going to come in and be Eddie's love interest. And then 
she formed this friendship with Amy because Meg can befriend pretty much anyone who's got any inclination towards being friendly. Um, and people are sort of disarmed by, again, her her honesty and and the fact that she thinks well of people. She goes in prepared to think well of people, which, again, is an underrated quality, I think. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things for me that really highlights it is that even Rebecca likes Meg. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, that tells you a lot because Rebecca does not have time for useless people. No. She, I mean, she hates Eddie for a large portion of the time to begin with it before finally sort of starting to forgive him a little bit more. Um, but she likes Meg. She values Meg. She thinks that Meg is brilliant. Um, which, again, is is a real indicator of... of Meg's value um, and not just her value in terms of what she can give and what she can bring but also her value as as a person and as a member of of the group yeah yeah definitely so I've definitely kind of worked both I didn't go in thinking I'm going to make kitchen heroes I just went in and that's what they turned out to be I guess um, yeah and I Steve. think honestly it is because you value so much of the of, of characters just actually getting on with stuff yeah. that I think it, it kind of end, ended up appealing to you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, Steve is moving to the state where he is a protagonist in his own right as well. And yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say he's the chosen one, but he is powering up more, mostly because of his association with people like Amy. Yeah, um, but he is essential. Yeah, absolutely. But I think one of the the ways that he is this kind of this rising, um, sort of he, humble kitchen hero is the fact that he really has not seen it up until now, yeah. and so he doesn't kind of quite believe it. Um, and it's actually taken sort of Amy and, and the others to sort of say, actually, what you have is very valuable and what you've always had is valuable because they've never seen him as anything less than, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'm still talking about my own work, I guess. Uh, I'd also mention Nick in I Rule the Night. Nick, yeah, absolutely hates anything supernatural, but definitely goes along with Grace when Amy calls for an SOS. And yeah. Nick, who's kind of like, oh god, there's a hellhound. Why does this stuff always happen to me? But at no point ever shies away from doing what's necessary and delivers the killing blow. <laughs> yeah, which again, it also makes me think of poor Craig, as yes. well, who is, I think, also a kind of a ki a, a, a kitchen hero in some respects. Because it's like, I don't want to deal with this. I came to university so I could escape this kind of stuff, but now it's here and my friends need me and I am not running away from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and finally, still talking about your work, which is Cuthbert. <laughs> We have to talk about Cuthbert. We have to talk about Cuthbert, my boy! <laughs> so Madeline I and I have you. had discussions, I'm sure we've had discussions about this on the podcast, but um, where, and it's Madeline's theory, and she, I don't think she's wrong, that like most of the King's Knight couldn't actually fall out the way that it did without Cuthbert's influence on Gregory. Yeah, we, we actually sat down and talked about what would happen if he hadn't 
had Cuthbert and literally everything falls apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> Gregory dies. Um, <laughs> you know, at several different times, points. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and that things don't work out, obviously, with him and Eleanor. Well, I think that, you know, it, they could have, there would have had to have been other sort of, you know, people who would come in and take over for Cuthbert. But if there was no one like that, then actually everything goes a bit haywire. In fact, without Cuthbert, history goes haywire because (laughs) you would lose (laughs) some pretty important people. (laughs) You would actually, that's a fair point. (laughs) (laughs) He's actually so much more. We're like, he's had a a great effect on history itself. (laughs) And the weird thing is, he's kind of like this unassuming uneducated, abused and ill-favoured orphan child, or, you know, essentially an orphan because his parents sold him into indentured servitude. Yeah. And it's just... And yet has somehow, throughout that, managed to basically remain a kind, honest person. Yeah. Which is not always easy. Particularly when you're surrounded by so much cruelty and hate, um, and yet somehow you manage to come up with some genuine moments of kindness and also perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for for me, one of the big things that Cuthbert does, which just seems so little, but actually was incredibly important, is that at one point, when everything is going down, um, Cuthbert just leads the horses somewhere safe. Yeah. Which has all Gregory's money with it as well. Yeah, which, yeah, and again, without that, everything would have fallen apart for Gregory. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's big time. And, and all it took was Cuthbert saying, okay, well, Master Chaucer said that's where he lived, so I guess I'll go there and I'll wait. And yeah. cry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, honestly, Cuthbert, you're brilliant. <laughs> I love that boy. Okay. <laughs> well, we, we know how I've used Kitchen Heroes in my work, so um, yeah. Madeline, do you want to field how you've... I feel there are definitely some pieces which I, I can't really talk about right now. Um, True. Where I've got sort of Kitchen Hero types, um, and I feel that going forward I am playing around a lot more with those characters, um, particularly for stuff where I'm going for a slightly softer aesthetic yeah um where you are i am trying to kind of capture that that almost that cottage core element but also that that sense of the beauty and simplicity um but also the power in that you can find in everyday life with with everyday skills um so i'm hoping to kind of explore more of those characters uh, going forward. Um, I think there are also a few people who've got those sorts of skills who are becoming steadily more important in things like the Kestrel saga. Yeah. Uh, where I do feel that, obviously, for example, um, Pete is often overlooked, and people will have no idea what I'm talking about, but you will soon, hopefully. I know what you're talking about. Y- you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um where actually I think it was because you read book three and you were like I'm actually finally starting to appreciate this character (laughs) yeah I think it I mean in fairness 
and this I'm really not having a go at you I promise but no. there was quite a big gap but for me between reading book one and book two and book two and book three and yeah and I, I'm trying not to put any pressure on you. Um, <laughs> so some of it was just a case of I'm not really getting the full impact because I'm not, because the concentration is on Kestrel, not on um, yeah. what Pete's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, to to be fair, he was he was a sidelined character a little bit because there were lots of big things happening and he was just kind of in the background. But you do get a, a sense of actually just how important he really is i think both to kestrel but also kind of you know to, to her well-being and 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 to the story as well what he can actually contribute yeah um which you didn't i think really get and to be honest i don't think even i really appreciated until i started writing book three where i suddenly pete was never going to be as big of a character and he really did start to grow because I realised he had so much more to give, that he was a lot more important um, than what I'd initially, you know, thought of when I just first kind of put him down on paper. Yeah, see, that's how it starts. <laughs> how it starts. That's how they get you. <laughs> anyway, um... We've reached the end of our episode, um, but, you know, there are so many other brilliant kitchen hero characters um, who, I mean, we love so many of them. I think we've taken a long time to name them all, but hopefully you kind of now have a, a very strong grasp of what kitchen heroes are, how you might be able to write them yourself. Um, and you know we'd love to hear who your favorite kitchen hero characters are whether you think we've overlooked anyone um whether you're interested in writing them as always you know do get in touch it's lovely to hear from you yeah before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe you've got another one for us this week yeah okay um this is a midwinter's tale by lily hayward Mm -hmm. and when I say it's cosy, this is this is a genuine. It genuinely really <laughs> is cosy. It's lovely. Uh, I read it over Christmas, um, and it does kind of have a Christmassy type, solstice type theme. Um, but I think you could probably read it in. It, it would be a great cosy tale for winter, no matter when. Um, yeah. So, um, basically, you have the main character Mina who she she works for a design company in London and she's not doing brilliantly mm -hmm. um, she's never really felt that she's in the right place at the right time and she's not happy um, but she's trying very hard to make a success out of it and then she randomly gets a letter from her godfather who lives on one of the Isles of Scilly um, called Morgulin Mm -hmm. and it you know it's a tiny island it's so small it doesn't even have roads people don't drive cars there because the island's small right. and he's just put one single note in there in a key saying can you please look after her and she's like oh god is he talking about his cat Moor and um, she's really angry because he's her godfather and she has mm -hmm. memories of being eight years old and spending a magical Christmas there and a magical like few weeks after christmas 
and being desperate to go back. You know, the place, the folklore, the, the stories, um, her godfather Davy himself all really stayed with her. Um, but then when her mother, who is, had been having difficulties with her father, says, no, you should really go back and see your father for half term mm-hmm. and takes her back. Her mother's driving back to Morgulin, having left Mina with her father for a week. And her mother has a terrible car accident and dies. And oh. that's it. She never, despite her father, then packs her off to boarding school. Um, so she's absolutely heartbroken. And she keeps writing to Davy, and Davy never replies to her. And for 20 years, she doesn't hear anything from him. So eventually, she gives up. She stops writing and she tries to focus it on where she's going to be now and being the mm. person that her father wants her to be and then she just gets this random letter from him with the key and for some reason she's even at a Christmas party and she drops everything she doesn't even stop to pack a bag she gets on a train down to Cornwall and she gets uh, an airbus over to Morgulin this island uh, to go and look after Moor the cat who is not an entirely usual feline and things mm-hmm. sort of unfold from there and it's, it's, it's just this lovely cosy tale that as it unfolds that there's there's something wrong on the island there's something not right and not in a folk horror way either I'd like to say <laughs> I was going to say like hold on a second <laughs> more in a okay we deserve to be able to preserve our way of life kind of way and again not through sacrifices the old gods um, <laughs> I'm just saying this because I've been accused of not getting the idea of cosy quite right but this really is cosy and it's, it's so adorable and um the cat is is the same cat that he had you know when she visited 20 years before big fluffy gray cat that turns up in a lot of the folk stories and she sort of eventually repairs her relationship with her godfather and there's a lot more to it but i don't want to spoilify anyone i think what you know okay. from that is go and read it it is the coziest winter story imaginable it's lovely it's not too long it's just it's so sweet it's really really lovely honestly that sounds so relaxing i'm definitely going to have to check that out thank you very much and but i swear if i get burned again (laughs) (laughs) i promise there's no human sacrifice there's no elder gods there's a bit of sneakiness from some other people but nothing really awful yeah, and I mean, I don't mind there being a plot. I just... <laughs> I don't mind there being a plot, but I don't want to find out that they're fighting on, on a war front. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want an ending that's going to devastate me. <laughs> Please. <laughs> no, it, oh. ultimately, it's a story about coming home, I think, is the best way to summarise it. Okay, all right. That that sounds That sounds very nice. Okay. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.